uh, getting into tonight, uh, tonight's message. Uh, I just wanted to share something with you guys. Uh, it's really weird. I don't know if I've shared this with everybody before. I've shared it with a few people. Uh, but there's been this weird thing that's been happening ever since I took over uh, this ministry and ever since I became a pastor here at Court Church is that the thing is every time, not every time, but it's happened so often that it's kind of like, what the, what's going on? When I preach something on a Friday night, Pastor Steve will talk about it on that Sunday. And at first it was like, oh, that's cool. You know, because like uh, when I, some of the first, well, the first series we went over was called Exemplary. We were talking about how to be an example through your, through your faith, even though you're young. And in one of those studies, I was talking about Joseph in Genesis. And that Sunday, I mean, we were going through Genesis on Sundays, but I wasn't like aware of what, what, we're, what chapter we were on on Sunday. But the exact same chapter that I went over on Friday night was the chapter that, that Pastor Steve ended up going over on Sunday. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then it happened again with some other scripture that I went over on Friday and Sunday he went over it. And then it happened again. And I was like, is this, is this man like listening to, to these messages on Friday night? Like, is he here somewhere? And, and then he goes on and preaches about it on Sunday. And it was just, it's just funny. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting little coincidence. But what happened this week, this week, Pastor Steve finally beat me to the punch. So if you were here on Thursday, if you were here last night, Pastor Steve spoke on something that, and I promise you, I was, I, this portion of my message that he spoke on, I was already done with it. So I, it's not like I heard what, what he preached on. I was like, oh, I'm going I'm to talk about that. Like, I was already there. So, you know, the, the plagiarism was getting out of control. And so I guess he decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this guy to the punch now. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've always, saw, I've always kind of interpreted it as like the Lord telling me like, hey, you're good. Like you're on the right track. Like if, 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 if this man who's been pastoring for 20 years, 20 plus years is, you know, talking about the same things that you're talking about and, it, and it's all, you know, working together, then you're on the right track. So, so it's always been encouraging, although slightly annoying. Like, man, come on, man. <laughs> but yeah, so the title of tonight's message is this plagiarism is getting crazy. I'm just kidding. Uh, the title of tonight's message is, <laughs> it's just going to be a huge gripe. I'm <laughs> bringing up evidence of how many times he's copied me. No. <laughs> um, the title of tonight's message is Stand and Heal Stand. Stand and Heal Stand. And we're going to have three points as always. Uh, the first point for tonight is saying the same thing again. Saying the same thing again. Uh, our second point is until the teeth fall out, until the teeth fall out. And then our third point is death is great. Death is great. So with all that said, uh, let's get into our first point, saying the same thing again as we reread 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. But we're actually going to start in verse 17. So kind of lied to you a little bit. Uh, so verse 17, for it is better... If God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So as we prepare to dive into this. Keep a bookmark, 1 Peter chapter 3, but I want you to turn to two other places in the Bible. Turn to John 15, John 15, and Matthew 10. Matthew 10. So John 15 and Matthew 10. Turn to those portions of scripture because we're going to be going over those, those pieces in a sec. But one thing that we need to make sure that we are mindful of is context, right? Context, the context of this entire letter. That's why, as I, as I stay every week and as every week we do this, uh, we read the entire letter so we don't lose the context of everything that was written. We don't want to take anything out of context because that's when you get meanings and implications that were never there to begin with. The media does this all the time. If you know, you know. Uh, but isolating verses and taking them out of context is pretty dangerous. Uh, it's kind of like kind of like these images that I, that I saw online. So it's an image of, of a lioness and her cub. So we're going to pull up the first image. 
So there you go. So there's that. You look at that and you're thinking, oh my gosh, what in the world is going on here? The mother lion is eating her cub. That's crazy. But then you get another angle and you look at the scenario in its entirety, you get the full context and this next image is what is actually happening. See, it's okay. This makes sense. It's not a mother lion eating her cub. It's a mother lion carrying her cub. Quite different implications, but if you were just going off of one angle taken out of context, it looks like the lion is eating her baby, which would be weird and crazy. But that's why context is important. So the context of these verses is summed up in, uh, in verse 17. In verse 17, where Peter writes that it's better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. But chapter 317 just sums up what Peter had written earlier in the letter regarding suffering and us being called to suffer for doing what is right. We're called to this and that, and that Jesus is our example of this. He's our example. So in light of all this, in light of all that, in this context, Peter brings up Christ dying for our sins once for all. Peter is essentially saying the same thing again, and he's doing this for a reason. And the reason he's doing that is the people that he's writing to were experiencing and they were going to experience persecution. They were going to suffer for their faith. And we too are and will suffer for our faith if you're doing it right. Um, If you're going through life as a Christian with no problems, no issues, no one looking at you funny or, or having a problem with you, then there may be a problem with your Christianity. Uh, Jesus said in John 15, if you guys are in John 15, let's look at verses 18 through 21. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it has, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So Jesus says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Jesus, then they will persecute us as well. It's because of our association and allegiance to Christ that this persecution will come upon us. But if our lives bear no evidence of this allegiance and association to Christ, then of course there will be no persecution. But if our lives bear no evidence, if our lives bear no evidence of of an association or allegiance to Christ, then how can we possibly be assured that we actually know him? Our association and allegiance to our master will welcome persecution. But Jesus has amazing encouragement and warning for us in Matthew chapter 10. So go to Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to read verses 28 through 33. Matthew 10, verses 28 through 33. It says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So there's the encouragement. There's the encouragement. People may be able to hurt you emotionally, mentally, even physically to the point of death, but don't fear them. Don't fear them. That's as far as they can go with you. That's as far as they can go is is killing you. Your eternal residence is reserved for you in heaven. They may harm your body, but God is preserving your soul. And not only that, but be encouraged by the fact that you are extremely valuable and precious to your heavenly father. He is so aware of all creation that if a bird dies, he knows. He knows when a bird dies, which birds are basically just rats with wings. Like he knows when birds die. So how much more is he watching over you? You who has been given the honor of bearing God's image. You are made in the image and likeness of God and he has all of the hairs on your head numbered. That's some detail that No one on this earth could ever keep track of, no matter how much they love you. If you're a woman, or if you live with a woman, uh, you know that hair just falls out 
and it's, it's everywhere. It gets everywhere. I remember growing up with my sisters and just seeing all the hair. There's just, there's just like a, a, a nonstop supply of hair. And um, the hair would be like left behind on their brushes. And, and it was ridiculous. It was, it was ridiculous. Like how was there possibly still hair left on your head with the amount of hair that I'm looking at on this brush? And now, you know, now that I'm married, I run into, you know, long strands of curly hair all the time that I know aren't mine. They're not mine. They're obviously my wife's. And uh, when I do see these long strands of hair, as much as I love my wife, I couldn't tell you what number hair that was. I just, I, I don't have that kind of detail on my wife. I don't know it. And I don't know what number of hair it is that somehow finds itself in my sock wrapped around my toe. I remember when I was going to school and I was junior high, living with my sisters, and I'd just be walking, you know, walking to class, and all of a sudden I realized, like, why, is there, why does it feel like there's something wrapped around my toe? like inside my sock, and then eventually, you know, I get to PE class or whatever, and, you know, I just take it off, and, like, it's a hair that somehow is wrapped around. How? How does that, how? Like, can someone please explain the physics to me of that? I put on the sock, and it's fine, and then I go throughout the day, and all of a sudden, there's a hair that, like, is knotted around my toe. It doesn't make any sense to me. Hair, women's hair is the devil, is what I'm concluding. As, as, as much as your hair costs to upkeep, uh, yes. Actually, I can't complain. My wife is really good about that. Um, but anyway, uh, that's the encouragement. God loves you, and he is watching over you, and he's well aware of whatever persecution you may be facing because he went through it first. He went through it first. But now here's the warning in verse 32, going back to Matthew 10. Here's the warning. Verse 32, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So going back to the question that I was asking earlier, if our lives bear no evidence of an allegiance and association to Christ, then how can we possibly be assured that we know him? Are you denying him? Are you denying him by not speaking up? Are you denying him by not living holy? If so, his mercies are new every morning. They're brand new every morning. So just repent, ask for forgiveness, and move on in the victory that's already yours. You already have the victory. Just move on in that victory. But turning back to 1 Peter chapter 3, Christ's death is the ultimate example for us to look to when we are suffering for doing good, when we suffer for doing what is right. But the amazing thing about this is that the suffering for doing good resulted in our salvation. Jesus Christ's suffering for doing good resulted in our salvation. That's amazing. So we can be encouraged that God can use our suffering for a good result. So whenever we suffer, we can be assured it's, there's probably something good that's going to come out of this. It's encouraging, and it's also a privilege to be used by God in this way, to, to be used through suffering, through pain. Pain is a privilege, is what I've read and what I've experienced. And then it says in verses 19 and 20 in 1 Peter chapter 3 that Jesus made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits who existed during the time of Noah and the flood. Now, this is a portion of Scripture that doesn't have a lot of detail, and it's produced many interpretations over the years. Uh, suffice it to say that these are not verses, these verses talking about Jesus proclaiming to the spirits that have been imprisoned. These, these aren't verses talking about a purgatory type of situation where he preaches the gospel to people who are in like this waiting room, this spiritual waiting room for a second chance at redemption. That's not what's going on. So let's, let's look at this briefly. Peter writes that Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. This is what he said. Now, that word spirit, the spirits, that word means breath, air, things which have no material substance, a spirit. So it's not people that he's proclaiming things to. Additionally, he proclaims to the spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah, is what Peter says. So if he was proclaiming to people in a purgatory type of situation, why is it that he's only proclaiming things to this specific group of pre-flood era people? That doesn't make sense. Furthermore, 
the word that Peter uses for the word proclaim, he made proclamation. That word proclaim just simply means to preach, to be a herald, uh, among other things. It's not the same word that Peter uses earlier in his letter when he means preaching the gospel. So it's not the same word. If, if Jesus was preaching the gospel to the imprisoned spirits, then Peter would have said he was preaching the gospel to the imprisoned spirits. But he didn't use that word. He used a different word that simply just means to proclaim something, to be a herald of something. So whatever is being proclaimed by Jesus, it isn't the gospel. Otherwise, Peter would have used that word. So a pretty good explanation for what's going on in these verses is that after Jesus died, he proclaimed something to the evil spirits who were in operation in the days of Noah. Uh, in Jude 6, Jude writes that some angels who didn't stay in their lane, that they were put in eternal prison and are awaiting judgment. So maybe Jesus was visiting these spirits who were imprisoned, and he was giving them kind of like an update of what's going on. You know, like, like hey, you like apples? Well, I'm about to rise from the dead. How you like them apples? Yes, I was counting on the old people. I was counting on the old people to get that. For those of you who are unaware, you younger folks, it's a movie called Goodwill Hunting. Uh, yes, anyway, I always like to feel old every once in a while. That movie came out in like early 2000s, no? Like it's old. It's old. Alan, IMDb, you don't know? Oh, no, I didn't mean it like that. No, that's not. That's, no, no, I didn't mean, I didn't mean because you're old, like, I just meant because, like, you know, you, you know films and stuff like that, like, it had nothing to do with the fact that you're very old, it's just, it's just, you know, because we talk movies sometimes. 97? Snap. Then, yeah, Alan definitely knows about that movie. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I lost my place. Where, where am I? But here's an important point to make in light of these verses. Not everything needs to be fully explained in order for the explicit truths of the Bible to be believed and trusted. Not everything needs to be fully explained. There are some things regarding our faith and the Bible that are super clear and super explicit, for sure. And then there will be other things that are sometimes very difficult or very hard to explain. These verses in 1 Peter, for example, we're talking about the proclamation to these imprisoned spirits, difficult to explain. There's not a lot of detail. We don't really know what exactly Peter is talking about in these verses. We can do our best to try to explain what's going on, but ultimately we don't know with 100% certainty. But that bears no weight on what we do know with 100% certainty. Like, how is one saved? How is one saved? What does it take for someone to be saved? The Bible's pretty clear on that. It's grace through faith. It's believing in Jesus. It's repentance of, from sins. It's being born again from above, and that comes through faith. It doesn't matter that you can't, that you can't fully explain what Peter is saying in these verses. That doesn't change what we know to be true about the gospel. The ambiguity of some portions of Scripture does not take away from the clarity of others. Some things are kind of foggy, and that's okay. But there are so many other things that are super clear in Scripture. And a lot of times the things that are foggy are things that don't have anything to do with the fundamentals of the faith. They're usually peripheral things that are open to discussion, and that's okay. As long as we're clear on the essentials. As long as we're clear on the essentials, there's room for discussions on these types of things. And this brings us to our second point of the night, until the teeth fall out until the teeth fall out. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 20 through 21. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, for those of you who may not be familiar with the story of Noah and the flood, I just wanted to share uh, I wanted to show a video, just kind of talking about it, 
Um, I really enjoyed this video that I saw when I first saw it. I was like, oh, this is really cool. It's, it's a nice little explanation, nice little synopsis. But before we play it, um, prior to where the video picks up, um, these are the things that we know. We know that God created the whole world, placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and he gave them a command, he gave them a choice not to eat from the fruit. They can eat from any fruit except for one. But, of course, they disobeyed God. They ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then sin entered the world, and then that's where we pick up. The humans, they've just rebelled, and what does God do? He promises to rescue them. But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain's so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him in the field. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomized in the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. And like Lamech, they acquire as many wives as they wanted, and they produce the Nephilim, these great warriors of old. Whichever view is right, the point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining his good world and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah right fails on. Thank too. You. And all so that's the story of Noah and the flood. Uh, so the sin of humanity got so bad, you know, that God decided to flood the earth in order to preserve the goodness of his creation, and he decided that he was still going to roll with humanity after that, which is why he chose to save Noah and his family uh, through the ark. He didn't discard humanity. He chose to rebuild with humanity, with his original creation, and, and that may be a word for some of you here tonight. Maybe you feel like you're worthless, and you, know, you deserve only to be discarded. First of all, you're right. You're right. Apart from Christ, you know, you, yeah, you're, you really have nothing to offer God. Apart from Christ, your only destination is hell. So if you're feeling that way, you're absolutely right. Your sin, no matter how big or small it may seem to you, it's a big problem for God, and it must be punished. But, but, hear me on this, but because he loves you, he punished your sin in Jesus Christ on the cross. God poured out the cup of his wrath on his only begotten son, and it pleased God to crush his only son. And he did this so that through faith we can be reconciled to him and he can adopt you as his child. And when did he do this for you? When did he do all of this for you? While you were holy and righteous? While you were sinless and perfect? While you were on team Jesus? No, he did this while you were a sinner. He showed his love to you while you were a sinner. He did this while you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He did this while you were his enemy through your sinful lifestyle. He showed his love for you and saved you while you were muddied and soiled with your sins, which were many. And I find myself saying this a lot lately, that if he loved you while you were his enemy, how much more is he going to love you now that you're his child? So he's not going to discard you, despite what you may be feeling, despite how worthless you may be feeling. He died for you. He's going to rebuild with you. But let's read verse 21 again, 
in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is Peter saying that in order to be saved, all you need to do is be baptized? No. Baptism is not a means of salvation. As we've stated pretty clearly, salvation is by grace through faith. It's a free gift of God to those who believe. He chose us before the foundation of the world, and we place our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism, according to verse 21, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. The NIV translates the words like this. Verse 21 says, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. It's not the act of getting into the water and the water actually doing something physically visible. Baptism is the reaction, the next step, the visible representation of what you have committed in your heart. To take from Warren Wiersbe, uh, he says this, quote, When a person was signing a contract, he would be asked, Do you pledge to obey and fulfill the terms of this contract? His answer had to be, Yes, I do or he could not sign the contract. When converts were prepared for baptism, they would be asked if they intended to obey God and serve him and to break with their sinful past. If they had reservations in their hearts or deliberately lied, they would not have a good conscience if under pressure of persecution, they denied the Lord, end quote. So baptism is not just something that you do. This isn't the Catholic church. You know, where you have to go through the sacraments in order to check off all the right boxes. Baptism is the outward expression of what has taken place in your heart. And what has taken place? What has taken place? Well, if you have come into a saving faith in Jesus Christ, then that means you're born again. That means that what it says in Ezekiel 36 verses 25 through 27 is true of you. This is what it says. This is the Lord speaking. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is true of you if you are born again. You have God's spirit inside of you, and you no longer live the way that you used to live. If you're born again, Galatians 2.20 is also true of you, which says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Baptism is the outward expression, the visible expression of these things that have taken place in the unseen places of your spirit and heart. Crucified with Christ, you live by faith in Christ. You have a new heart. God's spirit now enables you to walk in God's ways and not in your own past sinful ways. So let's read Romans chapter 6, and we're just going to read the whole chapter because it's all good. So let's start with verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. 
And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and have been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what you're saying when you get baptized. You're saying that your old self was buried with Jesus, and your new self has been resurrected with him. So now, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are free from sin. You're saying that you are dead to sin. Sin no longer has the ability to produce a reaction out of you. You're saying that because of this, sin will not reign in your life. When you are ready to get baptized, this is what you're saying. You're saying you're that sin will not reign in your life. You will not obey sin and its lusts, and you will not place yourself into situations where you will be used by sin. You're saying that you will place yourself into situations where you will be used by God for righteousness. When you say that you're going to get baptized, you're saying that you understand that even though grace is what saved you, grace is not an excuse to continue sinning. You're saying that you are now a slave to righteousness and God, which will inevitably lead to eternal life, which is the free gift of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. This is what you're saying when you get baptized. This is the commitment that you're making. This is what is being outwardly expressed through being baptized. You enter into the water fully, representing your old self being buried, and you rise up out of the water, representing your new life in Christ. That's why infant baptism is a no-go. Do you think these babies who are getting sprinkled with water have any idea any concept of what it means to be born again, slaves to God, dead to sin? Of course not. And that's also why flippant baptism is a no-go as well. Why are you getting baptized? Is it because you're trying to do things that will make you right with God? Or is it because you know you're right with God? You know you're right with God through faith, and you want the world to know. You want to put your money where your mouth is. You're signing the contract, and you're closing the deal. You're sealing the deal. God, I know what's going on here. I know what you've done for me. Now I want to identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. The old me is dead. The new creation in Christ is the one that's living now. So that's what's happening in baptism. That is the statement that you're making in baptism. You do it only if you are going to remain faithful to the commitment you make to Christ. It has great implications. And that's why Peter writes that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience because you're going to remain faithful to that commitment that you're making. You don't get married to someone if you think that you aren't going to be faithful. You don't marry somebody because you're like, I'm going to be unfaithful, so I'm going to go ahead and marry this person. I married my wife because I decided that I'm going to remain faithful to her. It's me and her until the end. It's me and her until the wheels fall off and the teeth fall out. Like, that's it. I said, I do because I'm committed to her. I said, I'm committed to you, Vrenny. I'm committed to you. 
So I'm going to take the plunge, proverbially. And we say to God, I'm committed to you, so I'm going to take the plunge in baptism. It's more than just an act of getting soaked and then being cold afterwards. It's, it's part of the commitment to Christ. And this leads us to our final point of the night. Death is great. Death is great. So going back to 1 Peter chapter 3, let's read verses 21 through 22. Verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So now that you just turned to 1 Peter, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians. <laughs> I'm sorry. I like to jump around in the Bible. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. So Jesus Christ not only died and was buried, but as many of you know and believe, uh, he also resurrected from the dead. Jesus Christ also resurrected from the dead. And people saw him. People saw the resurrected Jesus. This wasn't just a made-up fairy tale. This actually happened and was witnessed by many people. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In 1 John 1, John writes, he is proclaiming to others the things that he has heard, things that he's seen with his own eyes and touched with his own hands concerning Jesus Christ. These guys weren't making stuff up. They were retelling things that they actually witnessed, and some of them even died because they refused to deny what they had witnessed. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. This is Paul writing. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." So Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead, and he was seen by 500-plus people after he resurrected. And his resurrection, the fact that he resurrected, the fact that he rose from the dead, it made a couple of statements. One of the statements that was made is that it proved that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Romans 1.4, Paul writes that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. Another statement that the resurrection made is that those who believe in Jesus Christ can now be acquitted of all the charges against them. Romans 4.25, Paul writes that Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Jesus Christ rising from the dead means that we are declared legally right. Legally, we are innocent in God's eyes. We are not guilty in God's eyes because he did, in fact, take all of the punishment for our sins. You know, last week they talked about Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath, and if, even if you try to grab that cup and drink some of the wrath for yourself, it's all gone. There's nothing left for you to drink. He took it all. So now we're justified by faith in him because he rose again. And the resurrection also states that death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. In 1 Thessalonians 4.14, Paul writes that because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we will rise also. When we die, death has been defeated. And of course, the ultimate verses against death are found in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you're there, shoot over to verses 55 through 57. It says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What you got, death? You ain't got nothing on me. Death has been defeated. Amen. I so love, I so love Phil Wickham's song. I'm not like the biggest Phil Wickham fan because as I've discussed with Ben, uh, all of his songs sound the same. And, and, and I never knew why, 
But one day, like, the band was talking, and I've always had this thought in my mind. I was like, dude, why does all the Phil Wickham songs sound the exact same? Like, like it's, it, it all sounds the same. I, I don't know why. Um, I'm not going to say it's anything ethnic. Uh, but, like, why do all the songs sound the same? And then the band was talking one time, and, and then the band was talking about how, like, all the Phil Wickham songs are basically all the same four chords. Is that right? Like, I, I don't understand music, but I, I do understand what I hear. And I'm like, oh, so it's true. Like, I'm not just crazy. Anyway, besides the point, I love this song. Lyrically, Phil Wickham's the, the, he's dope, though. Lyrically, name me one Christian artist. Sidebar. Name me one Christian artist who has remained as consistent as Phil Wickham in every single song that this man writes is God-glorifying. I don't mean, sure, the music all sounds the same, but man, every single song, it's God, it's Jesus. You can't say that about a lot of Christian artists. Eventually, they start to talk about themselves or be about themselves, or they start to go woke and all this other stuff. From hip-hop to, to rock, like, I, the consistency of this man of writing worship is great. So just want to make sure I redeem my critique of, of, of Brother Phil. Um, but anyway, I love his song, Christ is Risen. Christ is Risen, where he says, O death, where is your sting? O fear, where is your power? The mighty King of kings has disarmed you. Delivered and redeemed, eternal life resounds. O praise his name forever. Hallelujah, Christ is risen from the grave. It's amazing. It's amazing because now that Christ is risen from the dead, death really has no power over us. It literally has no power over us. You no longer need to be afraid of dying because that is literally one of the greatest things that can happen to you. Death is great because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, it says that to be at home in this body, to be at home here in this body, it means you're absent from the Lord. So we prefer to be absent from this body and to be at home with the Lord but the following verses, verses 9 through 10, it says this, in light of this resurrection that we're going to experience, this eternal life that we have, in light of this, verses 9 through 10, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, we went over this truth of facing judgment for our deeds in Christ a few weeks ago when we went over 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Yes, we believers are awaiting a judgment. There is still a judgment coming for us. However, this judgment is not based on our sins because Jesus Christ already took care of that. He took care of all of our sins. But the judgment that we are still waiting for is the judgment for our works as saved people. Not works for salvation, but because we're saved, our works in light of that truth. But as we begin to conclude tonight's message, um, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. This is going to be where we, where we end tonight in Acts chapter 7. In 1 Peter 3.22, which is our verse for the, the third point tonight, it says that Jesus is now at the right hand of God in heaven, and he is above all angels, authorities, and powers. And as I've been saying throughout our entire time in 1 Peter, throughout this series, this book, this letter, uh, it has a whole lot to do with suffering. I mean, last week's message was entitled, More Suffering. It's just like suffering is the theme of 1 Peter. Of course, Christ is our example of suffering despite, what is, despite doing what is right. And he is our example because this is something that we're called to, as I've stated before, to suffer even when we do what is right. Suffering is the theme that runs throughout this letter. We've been called to it. Jesus is our example. And tonight we talked about baptism. The immersion of our bodies into water as a public declaration of our heart's transformation. But Jesus, in speaking about his own suffering, he referred to the crucifixion as a baptism that he was to experience. He told his disciples who were hoping, they were like, hey, Jesus, when you get in your kingdom, let us sit right next to you. That's the place of high honor. And then Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? He also said, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. He's talking about his suffering, his death, 
and crucifixion. So in bringing all of these themes together, Christ's resurrection, the ascension to the right hand of the Father, being, us being called to suffering just like Christ who is our example, our deeds in Christ one day facing judgment, and the baptism of Christ. And we find ourselves in Acts chapter 7 where all of these themes converge. Some of you may know Stephen from Acts chapter 7. This is the time, and in, in, in the book of Acts, this is the time of the early church the church was just blowing up as the gospel was being preached. Signs and wonders were happening. People were coming to Christ and becoming born-again believers. And it got to the point where the apostles, they had to choose some men to be deacons and leaders to deal with the practical aspects of the church because they needed to focus on preaching the word and being in prayer. So they picked some men. And one of these guys was Stephen. And this guy was filled with the Spirit. He was performing signs and wonders. And when folks came at him trying to argue with his faith, he was able to argue back with great wisdom and confound them. Quick side note, being filled with the Spirit, being led with the Spirit, does not mean that you neglect the Word. Last week or two weeks ago, I was talking about how there are churches out there who will just focus on worship, being led of the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. That's why I'm dancing around with flags and jumping around and rolling on the ground and barking like a dog. They're so focused on being led of the Spirit that they forget doctrine. But then you got these other churches so focused on doctrine that God now, he's just a subject that you learn about. He's not a person that you know. So you got to have balance. And in the same way, Stephen here is a perfect example of that balance. He was full of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He was performing signs and wonders. But also when people came to challenge his faith, he was able to reason with them and give them wisdom and to confound their arguments. Psalm 19 talks about the word the word of God being perfect and sure and right and pure and true, and then it's able to make the inexperienced wise. It makes wise the simple. So be led of the Spirit, but be filled with the word of God. Whatever you do, make sure it lines up with Scripture. Otherwise, you're just doing your own thing. But Stephen was filled with the Spirit, and he was able to refute those who challenged him, so they made up lies about him. And they brought him to the high priest where he had to make a defense for what he was preaching. Stephen had to make a defense of Jesus to those who rejected Jesus and were the reason that he was crucified, basically standing before the enemy. But he didn't hold anything back. He didn't hold anything back. He preached the truth, and this was his concluding statement and the result. So let's read Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60. Verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, the high priest and the council, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So in regards to the themes that we have been discussing tonight and, are, and the, the themes that are converging here in Acts chapter 7, we see Jesus resurrected, he's ascended, and he's at the right hand of the Father, but he's not sitting on a throne. He's standing. He's standing up. He's actually standing as he observes the first martyr being executed for their faith in him. Kings don't stand for anyone. That's not what they did. But King Jesus stood up for his precious saint who was paying the ultimate price for his faith. We see Stephen fulfilling what he's been called for, what he's been called to, what we've all been called to, suffering for his faith despite doing the right thing. Just like his suffering savior, who is now standing for him. And Jesus is watching it all happen as he awaits to receive Stephen after he breathes his last breath. Because to be absent from the body is to be at, to be at home with the Lord. We see the deeds of Stephen, his works 
as a saved person, his works for the kingdom that will be brought before his Lord in judgment. I wonder what Jesus thought about this work that Stephen was doing in dying for his faith. And then we see Stephen taking part in the baptism of Christ, suffering death for the gospel. And honestly, I don't know why these portions of scripture, like I really have no idea why in my preparation for tonight's message that Acts chapter 7 came to my mind and that's what the Lord wanted to speak. But if I had to draw a conclusion, if I had to draw a conclusion from, from this, it's so that we can all be encouraged. It's so that we can all be encouraged because on the spectrum of suffering, at the lighter end of the spectrum, we have momentary light affliction that cannot even be compared to the glory that is awaiting for us on the other side. At the lighter side of the spectrum of suffering, we can always look to the people like Stephen or our brothers and sisters throughout the world in other countries who are truly suffering for their faith in Christ, those that are in communist countries or in Muslim countries or countries that are just plain old violent towards Christians. We can look to them and be thankful that we're not suffering as much as they are, and it makes our suffering not as bad. And then on the other side of the spectrum, the darker end of the spectrum where the suffering can result in death, we can look to this passage in Acts chapter 7 and know that our Lord is standing. He's observing. He's in full control of the situation. And he is awaiting our entry into his kingdom so that he can welcome us in and say, well done, good and faithful servant. No matter where we are on this spectrum of suffering, we can find encouragement because in any and all circumstances, it's temporary. It's temporary. There will always be those who are suffering greater, and even if you are the one who is suffering greater, in that your suffering will lead to death, you are the most fortunate because death has lost its sting and its power, and you will rise because he also rose to live as Christ and to die is gain. So be encouraged tonight. Amen? Be encouraged. Like it says in Romans 8.37, but in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So if you need prayer tonight, our leaders will be in the back during worship waiting for you to approach them so that they can serve you by praying for you. But with all that said, let's pray as we prepare for this next time of worship.